0: Welcome to Blood Bites, an oncology learning network podcast. My name is Stephen Trian. I'm the director of the Bing Center for Waldenstrom's Macroglobulinemia at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. I will be hosting today's episode. I'm joined by Dr. Christian Buske. And perhaps Christian, maybe you want to introduce yourself at this point?
1: Yeah, my name is Christian Buske. I'm located uh, in Germany at the University Hospital of Ulm and I'm medical director at the Comprehensive Cancer Center in Ulm and I'm also heading an institute uh, of ex- for experimental cancer research and I'm the president of you know, German Lymphoma Alliance study group and I'm coordinating the European Consortium for Weidenstrom's Macroglobulonemia.
0: Well that's a wonderful CV and it's really a privilege for me to be able to have this discussion with you Today, along with Dr. Buskey, we'll be discussing the role of maintenance rituximab in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. There's been a lot of evolution in our thinking about the use of maintenance, and uh, this will be a very nice opportunity to be able to have this discussion uh, with Dr. Buskey. I think as many of our colleagues know, this uh, Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia is a strongly CD20-expressing entity, and for this reason, The use of rituximab was very early adapted into the care of patients. Our initial studies, you know, showed the drug to be active and, you know, using single-agent rituximab, we were able to see responses in 20 to 40% of patients. However, these responses were not typically deep. Categorical responses, you know, such as complete responses or very good partial responses were really not seen with the use of single agent rituximab. And for this reason, we and others embarked on trials, looking at combination therapy with various combinations. And this was actually extremely important because when you look at the clone in Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, it's made up of mature B cells, lymphoplasmacytic cells that are CD20 positive, but also you have plasma cells that are CD20 negative and uh, in order to be able to overlap the entire clone there was a lot of work done to be able to combine agents including agents that we typically use for targeting myeloma plasma cells these were very important uh, studies because they helped introduce effective combinations including the use of cyclophosphamide and christian played a very big role with understanding the role of chop uh, versus chop Rituximab in the setting of lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma or Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Our work was mainly focused at the time on the use of proteasome inhibitors and later with bendamustine. And what we learned from these trials were that we could actually see higher overall response rates approaching 90%. But more importantly, we were seeing deep categorical responses. We finally could talk about CRs and VGPRs which we weren't able to do so with Rituxin alone. However, I should point out that CRs still remain relatively elusive. Somewhere between 5 and 20% of patients may get into a CR with these combinations. But CR is not necessary in the treatment of patients because many times we can obviate their symptoms and really produce long-term progression-free survival even without getting people into CRs. Uh, it appears that VGPR or better may be predictive of these long-term responses. And it's important for the audience to know that typically with a frontline regimen, one can see response durations of a few years time, even upwards to five to six years with the use of a combination therapy. Now, one of the big questions in our field has been the role of maintenance Rituxin. And we have seen the benefit of maintenance Rituxin along many indolent uh, lymphomas. And back in 2006, we published a retrospective study, which was really observational in nature. It meant to see what the benefit of maintenance rituximab was in patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And this study actually was focused on 248 individuals who either were observed or received maintenance rituximab. And we learned a couple of interesting lessons from that. Uh, the patient population that we looked at was ultimately those who achieved a minor response or better, so 25% reduction in their IgM, and we wanted to see what the benefit of then maintenance rituximab was against observation alone. And that study showed, in fact, that with the addition of maintenance rituximab at that point, that these patients who had received a rituxin-containing regimen had a uh, upgrade in their categorical response. In fact, over 40% of the patients had a deepening of their response who had received maintenance rituximab therapy. And with this, what we saw was a improvement in progression-free survival. These patients had almost a two-year gain in their progression-free survival, and it was also evidence of an improvement in overall survival. The way the patient's got maintenance was one infusion every 3 months for a period of 2 years time. And so with that recognition in the study, uh, many of us had adopted the use of maintenance rituximab and you know this has been incorporated into many of our guidelines including the NCCN. But there has been some exciting developments at this last American Society of Hematology meeting the one in 2019, we finally excitingly heard from our German colleagues about the prospective study that the STIL group had, in fact, put together uh, with Matthias Rummel and Christian Buskey, supporting this effort to try to give us a prospective experience on the use of maintenance rituximab. And I'm uh, really looking forward to hearing from you, Christian, uh, as is our audience, on what the outcome of your study, which took, what, seven years to be able to initiate and report on. So, congratulations, first of all, on this very important study. I know that it's very meaningful to our field.
1: Yeah, thank you very much, Steve. It's really a pleasure to report on this on behalf of the STEEL Group for Indolent Lymphomas and Matthias Rammel, who who is the first author of this study. So as you said, uh, I think it's a very important trial because it's a prospective randomized trial. So it's a phase three trial, which actually tested two years rituximab maintenance versus observation after first-line treatment with Mustin plus rituximab in patients with stroms macroglobulinemia, So the background actually is for us also coming from, from the field of nodal lymphomas, that rituximab maintenance is for us some kind of standard in the treatment of follicular lymphoma, treatment-naive patients having received an induction regimen. So for these patients with follicular lymphoma, rituximab maintenance over two years, uh, given once every two months is is a kind of standard. So, as you said, Steve, I think it was for us very important to test whether this rituximab maintenance is also, let's say, uh, that effective in Weidenstrom's macroglubinemia. And we have to, to see that actually lymphomas are different. So we know, for instance, that rituximab maintenance after Bender muscle rituximab in mental cell lymphoma is not effective. So I think it was important to test it specifically for patients with Weidenström's macrogluconemia. So um, the trial's uh, objective was to demonstrate uh, PFS improvement, progression-free uh, survival improvement, for two years, of not maintenance over observation. So the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. It was actually a large trial with 91 centers involved in Germany and Austria and, uh, as you said, it was a long recruitment time, which is unfortunately not rare in, in room, because, of course, there are fewer patients compared, for instance, to quicker quicker lymphoma. So, the recruitment time was indeed eight years, but nearly 300 patients, exactly 296 patients, were registered. And the median follow-up for all patients was 77 months, so quite mature data. So the study design importantly starts with bendamustine rituximab in these 296 patients, so an induction uh, with bendamustine rituximab for six cycles. And importantly, only patients who at least achieved a partial remission, they could undergo the randomization between the watch and wait and the two years rituximab maintenance. So in each arm, we had a little bit over 100 patients. So, what is important to recognize is that actually nearly 100 patients were lost between the registration of patients into the clinical trial and the patients who were finally randomized, which of course means that there is a certain selection of patients who were responsive to bendamastin rituximab and also tolerated this induction regimen. So for these patients, you have then these randomized comparisons. So, um, as I said, the inclusion criteria, it was Widenstrum in need of treatment. Importantly, previously untreated patients. So this is a trial which tests rituximab maintenance in the first-line setting. And, say, I, I move now directly first to the results, first of the induction regimen. So we know that bendamustine rituximab is highly efficient. It's one of the regimens we recommend in national and international Treatment guidelines and this was also confirmed in this trial because the overall response rate was 93% in this prospective trial. So for the patients who underwent the and the rate of VGPR, CRs together was 25%. So as I said, this was not the primary endpoint. But the primary endpoint was actually the progression-free survival. Now, uh, comparing the patients who underwent rituximab maintenance versus observation, mm-hmm. and for the total patient population, so 109 patients per group, uh, who were evaluable for rituximab maintenance and and versus observation, so there was no major difference. So the um, the hazard ratio was 1.2 with a large confidence interval, and the p-value was also not significant. So the main result um, in this trial is that for the total group of evaluable patients, for the randomized comparison, no difference between patients receiving retuximab maintenance versus observation. So not surprisingly, also for this group of patients, the overall survival was not different as expected. And when we look now at the again still um, dealing with the total uh, patient population, when we look at the causes of death, we see that yeah there is a trend towards more lymphoma-related death in the observation arm compared to the two years uh, rituximab maintenance. Also, when we look at the as I said total patient population, the rate of secondary malignancies was not different between the two arms. There are some more infections in the rituximab maintenance arm. So there were four patients corresponding to 4% of patients who died by infection in the two years rituximab maintenance arm, whereas there was none of these fatal infections in the intervention. I think very interestingly, the data were also analyzed with regard to subgroups. And one intriguing result, I think we can also discuss this later on, was that patients who had an intermediate or high-risk score corresponding to the International Prognostic Score for Wiedenström, They had indeed an advantage when they received Rituximab maintenance. Of course, we have to take into account, it's a subgroup analysis, it's not powered. Uh, The trial is not statistically powered, but it's a clear cut um, difference. The median month is 78 versus 118 uh, for the Rituximab uh, observation versus Rituximab maintenance. So it's a difference, a positive uh, effect of Rituximab maintenance in the subgroup population. And when we look at the progression-free survival according to age, we see that patients older than 65 years also had a benefit from rituximab maintenance compared to observation. Also, here with a significant p-value and a hazard ratio of 1.86. Which means, in summary, so um, it's the first large prospective randomized trial analyzing rituximab maintenance violence from patients in need of treatment in the first-line setting. I think it's important that it evaluates rituximab maintenance after bender rituximab induction in patients who tolerated and were responsive to this regimen. For the total patient population, we don't see any differences, but there is uh, a hint that in patients, in elderly patients, in patients with a higher tumor burden, rituximab maintenance might um, add click also in the prospective data set. So with this, I want to stop Steve and perhaps we, we discuss this data.
0: Thank you, uh, Christian. Uh, that was a wonderful summary of the data. There are perhaps some questions that are worth at least bringing out. You know, here in the United States, we typically tend to use about four cycles of bendamustine. I think in, in, in the still study, uh, most patients received in fact, six cycles. Do you think that, you know, impacted on the overall results?
1: Yeah, I think we cannot exclude this. So you are completely right. So in this study, actually, uh, the protocol said that you should get six cycles of rituximab endermustin, which means that most of these patients also got six cycles. Yeah, it, it might have an impact because we know that the depth of remission received after induction regimen might impact, of course, the effect of and then... Uh, subsequent maintenance treatment. So this we have to take into account that um, as I said in this prospective data set, retuximab maintenance was tested indeed in patients who really got a lot of induction, yeah, um, and where the majority had quite a deep remission quality, let's say, probably deeper than in the real world setting, where also in Germany, most patients, at least this is what we recommend, only get four cycles of pembrolizumab.
0: Of the other point about the study, which is worth emphasizing, is that the study randomized individuals that had a partial response or better, so a 50% reduction in disease burden or better. You know, many times we tend to apply the maintenance to patients who have had even a minor response. in our you know, retrospective series, we had looked at all patients who had at least an MR or better, perhaps you know, on the hypothesis that Rituximab could improve their categorical response, which is what we had seen in that retrospective series. Do you think this uh, was an important difference and you know being able to target only the patients who did the best? And therefore, not being surprised by the outcome.
1: Absolutely, I think that's a, that's a major a major point, yeah. And I think conceptually, we think uh, that of course it makes sense. Who have uh, less benefit from an induction regimen, to give them something additional, yeah. Uh, conceptually, I think it makes absolutely um, sense. And you're completely right. It might be that patients who have still a quite high tumor burden at the end of induction. They are the ones which benefit from a rituximab maintenance, and in this line it fits that also in the Rumble data, which I just presented, patients who had a high or intermediate high risk score, which is in some way a surrogate marker for tumor burden, patients who are elderly, because age is one of the major drivers of this prognostic score, that they had also um, not statistically powers, a benefit from rituximab maintenance. So I think we have to interpret these data not as a complete no-go for rituximab maintenance. I think it just tells us a little bit that, as always in medicine, yeah, we have to individualize treatment uh, strategies. and. Um, not to give everybody rituximab maintenance and not to give not rituximab maintenance to everybody. So it's not black and white. I think it just trains us and and tells us that it will be depending on the situation. And I completely agree that patients who have just a minor response and where we want to do some consolidation or even improvement of the category of response, Rituximab maintenance is a very valid option because we all have a lot of experience with rituximab single agent. Yeah, I think, uh, Steve, in the US it was the most frequently used chemo-free approach before the emergence of ibutinib. Yeah, And when you also look at the toxicity of the rituximab maintenance in this study, actually it was well tolerated. We had a few more fatal infections. We know this also from, from other lymphomas, but otherwise Rituximab maintenance is well-tolerated also in Yeah,
0: uh, I think tolerance is going to be something that will be very important for us to discuss. But before we um, get there, the only other question I wanted to ask you is that a lot of people are going to try to take away lessons from this study to other Rituximab-containing regimens. So, you know, for patients getting cyclophosphamide or bortezomib mm-hmm. or Carfilzomib, do you think the lessons you know from this study also apply to those other regimens or is this one of those you know we know bendamustine does very well but you know we may not be able to apply what we learned from here to those other regimens
1: yeah i of course nobody knows but i would be very cautious yeah? so we know this from the so we know that rituximab maintenance after our chop is highly effective yeah and we know that this is seems to be not the case after Arbendamastin. So I think the, the nature of the induction regimen can have a major impact on the effect of a subsequent maintenance strategy. So I would be cautious, yeah? And we know that, for instance, DRC, which is, I think, beside rituximab bendamastin, our preferred rituximab immunochemotherapy in Bidenström, is a milder treatment. It's a weaker treatment, uh, better tolerated, but weaker. So the tumor burden, but The death of remission after DRC will be less uh, so pronounced as compared to rituximab and so I would imagine, in particular, patients treated with DRC of maintenance might be of clinical benefit. I think for, for this um, reason, it would be interesting. Uh, we don't have prospective data, but to go back to retrospective data sets, yeah, uh, which perhaps are available to to look at this. So. To summarize it i would not generalize the last we have with our to other perhaps much milder immunochemotherapies
0: yeah i think the point about tolerance and infection is a very important one in in our study we did see that iga and igg levels went down in patients who are receiving maintenance rituximab and We know right off the bat that patients who have Waldenstroms, about 70% of them already have lower IgG and IgA levels. We see the same thing even in CLL patients. And the mechanism for this remains unclear. We do know that after the treatment of patients with these rituxin containing regimens, these numbers only go down and you don't really see recovery in IgG and IgA levels. And you do see recurring sinus and bronchial infections in this population. So it is really important to ask patients if they're experiencing sinobronchial infections and to monitor also their IgG and IgA levels. In the prospective study, you mentioned that there was an increase in infection. Do we know if uh, IgG and IgA levels changed uh, during the course of therapy?
1: Unfortunately, we we don't know. I think we have to mention that these very interesting data are still not fully published. So they were presented as an or a presentation at ASH. And, and uh, so let's say uh, the information we have is mainly based on the slides which were presented. Mm-hmm. So this we don't know. We know there is a slightly higher number of fatal infections. When you look at toxicities grade 3-4, neutropenia, leukocytopenia, actually there was not much difference between the observation arm and the two years uh, rituximab maintenance, at least at the stage of data analysis we had at last year's ESH. So there were, again, a little bit more grade three, four infections in the Rituximab maintenance. Arm, but uh, I completely agree, we know this also from the um, Rituximab maintenance can induce neutropenias. And as you said, these kind of infection and patients have to be aware, yeah.
0: So the, the final question is, who should we treat with maintenance Rituximab? I was very impressed in your report, particularly among patients that had a intermediate or high IPSS score. These generally tend to be patients over 65, since you pick up two points on the IPSS scoring system just for being 65 or older. So you can have a total of five points for the IPSS score. So being 65 or older you know, already puts you two points ahead. Do you think it's reasonable based on what you have learned? and you saw a really big difference in progression-free survival in this population. Is it reasonable for us now to use maintenance Rituxin in this population or at least consider using it with what we know?
1: I think it's it's a very interesting question and um, it might be very interesting to go back to the data I just presented, data which we don't have at the moment, and to see whether these intermediate high-risk patients also Who had less response, let's say, after the induction regimen, meaning uh, that these patients, you know, were more in the category of partial remission, Um, so that this prognostic score correlates with the depth of remission. What I would practically do is, um, I think, yes, we should take this into account, but, you know, we have the advantage outside of a clinical trial that we can Yes, we should prognostify these patients, we should be aware of these data, but probably I would wait for the results um, of the remission I achieve after BR. So when you have these patients in this category, plus they have only a minor response, or perhaps yeah, they just met the, reg- uh, the criteria for a partial remission, for me this would be candidates to go for rituximab maintenance. When you have um, a patient who falls into this intermediate high-risk score, but has really nearly a CR, it might change, you know, your attitude to to add uh, rituximab maintenance. So probably I would take a combination between what you said and uh, the response you achieve after BR. But it's it's a little bit of gut feeling. It's not really evidence-based. But when you have a very deep remission after BR, even when it's a high-risk patient, you might be more generous in in skipping a rituximab maintenance.
0: Thank you, uh, Christian. I think this really wraps things up. These are very exciting times. We're very grateful to you, Christian, for being here available today to be able to discuss the results of the still study. And I think more work clearly is needed. Uh, We need to really pour over this data when it gets fully published Uh, But in the meantime, this does give a glimpse to our audience of the ongoing debate around the use of maintenance rituximab in patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. And uh, with this, I'd like to thank the Oncology Learning Network for giving us the opportunity to discuss this data on maintenance rituximab in patients with Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia. Thank you for listening to Episode 1 of Blood Bites, a hematology podcast produced by Oncology Learning Network. Please visit www.oncnet.com for more episodes, as well as the latest news and research updates on hematologic malignancies.